everyone. Welcome back to uh, US-China series and, and of course, Climate Transform for our series, which is something I get to enjoy because I am having the prospect of interviewing a bunch of friends about their distinguished careers in the guise of Yield Transformed and what this will be, as I, as I alluded to. It's going to be my discussion about the future of Yield in, in all its forms. And today I've got an old friend, John Malloy, who is the co-head of Emerging and Frontier Markets at RWC Partners. He is based in Miami and someone I have, A, known for a very, very long time, for some 25 years, and secondly, is probably the number one emerging market fund manager that uh, I have the pleasure with dealing with. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start off here. So you and I have known each other since 1996, or should I say we first spoke in 1996 when I was a a minion at at Goldman Sachs on the derivative desk in Hong Kong, and you were at this firm called Everest Capital, which was, I don't know, if rogues is the wrong word. Everyone was rogues in the emerging market space back in the early 90s, but you were there for, for a long time. And you and I sort of cut our teeth, I'd argue, during the Asian crisis. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how foundational the Asian crisis was for an emerging market investor, and particularly you and, and your colleagues at Everest at the time? Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's Always great to speak with you, and thank you, everyone, for joining. Yeah, so I was sitting on a rock in the middle of the ocean called Bermuda at that time. If you remember, Paul, we were out there. I think, and even backing up before that, I, I, before I was at Everest, I was at Bering Asset Management, and I started actually in fixed income. So I started actually at a time when the Brady bonds were still in circulation and you had loans. And so having that kind of macro element to my investing career at the very, very beginning was instrumental. It gave me a huge appreciation for macro risk in terms of investing in emerging market equities, which is what we primarily do right now. The Asian financial crisis, I mean, it was just a phenomenal opportunity because, I mean, we were literally trading billions of won, the Korean won, the bot, the ringgit. We actually, Everest Capital, we probably made a billion dollars and we probably had literally Two and a half billion under management. It was a phenomenal period for us. We did extremely well. Unfortunately, we got caught up in Russia the next year. So as Paul, that ended up being very, very difficult. But yeah, I think that the thing is that it, it, you recognize the boom bust nature of emerging markets, how quickly they can go from we had at that point, we were coming out of the, the Asian tigers and everybody was super excited about, excited about places like Malaysia. And then we went to a period that pretty quickly of currency controls, capital controls, shutting down markets, closing markets, changing market structure. And I think one of the benefits that we have and my team as well, who have worked in alternatives or hedge funds, is that we have seen the cycles. We've been through this and we've we've seen how it can change to the negative very quickly or to the positive very, very quickly. We're probably kind of going through that right now in China. I mean, clearly all of my calls, the ones all this morning are focused on China to the negative why should we invest in China? Why isn't China? Hasn't it completely changed? And so for us, it's an opportunity. And it's, a, it's an opportunity set within the emerging markets to take an active approach to investing with that strong macro backdrop. I would also say, though, one thing that's changed and we've talked about, and I'm sure you've looked into it, Paul, is just market structure. I mean, at that time, Goldman was running its own prop book, had a front book, had a back book probably billions of, could have been tens of billions of dollars. In talking to the street now and talking to traders now, there's absolutely no liquidity. So when you have an issue, whether it be in the debt markets or currency markets, you end up having these gaps down and and even gaps up. But I think that's a big difference than 25 years ago, where the markets were probably less developed, but there was much, much more dealer liquidity, trading liquidity than there are now. And the large hedge funds like Everest or whatever, Tiger Soros, they were much more active and had much more of a trading approach than more of an endowment approach than they have now. Yeah, and it's about, again, you don't have guys like Tim Throsby where you can call up at any stage. And Tim, he was our head of trading when I was at Goldman, and you were right, the books were enormous. And I think the liquidity issues that you talk about in EM, they're the same liquidity issues you get in commodities now. And I think we can talk about that later on, about the similarities between EM and commodity markets and the symbiotic relationship that they have. You talked about cycles there. And when you think about sort of quintessential emerging market firms, you think of places like Templeton and these sort of places, which were predominantly long-only organisations. Can you be long-only in EM? 
or do you need to have the hedge fund model where you could, as I said, you made a billion dollars during the Asian crisis, right? And you made it, you didn't make a billion dollars long during the Asian crisis. Let's put it that way, right? Do you need to do you need to have that ability to short in EM to take advantage of the wild cyclicalities that occur, or has has central global central bank policy, particularly the Fed, where they, with their determination to crush cycles, has that developed a long only mindset that can apply to EM? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think the pure EM long short equity is incredibly difficult. The ability to short how many the instruments the the setup is is really, I would say, very very hard at this point. I would say the other extreme when you look at passive EM, which clearly would be the the other extreme. I don't think it makes sense. At all. I mean, if you look at just the index composition, if you look at SOEs, if you look at how the index is constructed, what's in it, what's not in it, we take a very, very active approach to EM equity long only. And we are index aware. You have to be index aware, but but we'll have an active share of anywhere from 70 to you know 90, maybe as high. There could be a model of multi-asset class within EM, but my view always has been for emerging markets, if you're going to invest in emerging markets, you're going to take the risk, you should get paid for it. So having a low vol, less correlated type of developed market multi-asset, I don't think makes sense because I think you're taking too much risk that you don't really know. So could China wake up tomorrow and devalue by 15% or 20%? Sure. Could they put on currency controls, capital controls? Could you? Could that happen in Turkey? Sure. Do you have assassinations and governments changing over? So my view is to build a diversified portfolio of high return opportunities that are based on our themes, based on our macro, and try to have less correlation or low correlation among those themes. So some are working at any given time. Over the past, we started the strategy nine years ago, and over the past nine years, we've produced a return of around 12%, which doesn't sound great, but it's over the index, which is just about 6%. So that's not bad if it's close to a team's return for equity in kind of, I would argue, a tough market or maybe even a bear market. But yeah, I mean, your question on the multi-asset, it'd be tough now. And then the other thing is, do investors want that? I mean, we our investors are institutions, their endowments, their pension. They have a dedicated exposure to emerging market equities, and, and that's where we fill the role. Right. And again, it's very easy to have a throwaway line like having a venture capital or private equity approach to, to public markets, right? Which would be great if mark-to-market accounting didn't exist. If you didn't get marked every day, you could take that sort of mindset. But do you require that mindset in emerging markets to be able to extract true value? Now, obviously, if you're going to take a PE mindset to public market equity with all the the vagaries of mark to market. You can't use a lot of leverage in that environment. So talk about talk a little bit about that sort of mindset between trying to have a PE mentality, having to deal with marks that we all have to deal with, and and the implications of and what sort of use of leverage you can use in EM. The mentality we take is that we're buying the business. So you could say it's an absolute PE mentality because we're we're saying okay, would we buy this business at 15 times earnings, 20 times earnings, 30 times earnings, whatever it is, and given all the analysis. That's that's how we look at it. And, and we try to take in building a portfolio more of a much more of an absolute return mentality. So not, okay, 10 cents X, 5% in the index, I want to have 7% or I want to be underweight. It's do I want to own 10 cents? Do I want to own this company? So I think that's that's the mindset that we try to take in looking for opportunities in building a portfolio. I'm sure there's people that do really well in PE in emerging markets. But in my experience, it's tough. We're not in markets that might have the same bankruptcy laws or the same legal structure than the US, than than the UK, than Europe. You have currency risk, you have convertibility risk. You have basically the capital structure where oftentimes debt holders actually are not senior to equity holders in a restructuring. We're probably going to see that in Evergrande. I mean, I, I suspect. And so those are all things that when you're a PE investor, you're thinking about, oh, it's going to go great and it's going to, we're going to do really well. But you have to think about the other side where, okay, what's the exit strategy? What happens when things don't go well? And I think that becomes much, much, much more complicated. And then you're also subject to the capital market cycle. So do you have an exit? Do you have a market like we saw in China last about a year or so ago or nine months ago where it was a amazing bull market. You had IPOs every other day, you had secondary issuance and you had liquidity. Obviously that's gone away. 
she's sitting there with ByteDance right now today. I don't know. Maybe they can bring it to the market. Is it going to be at 20 times revenues, 30 times revenues? Am I going to be interested in that? Probably not. So I think those are all things that you think about kind of from the private side. I would also say that there's also an element of smaller companies too, where you have companies that are very good companies, but just because of the market structure, because of the ownership of family business that they don't really care about increasing liquidity. So you have different dynamics in emerging markets that, you know, given our whatever, almost 30 years of experience in the markets, we've seen it and we've recognized those, those risks and, and opportunities. So I want you to go through it and talk a little, and I know you've got a presentation and you want to talk a little bit about the firm and the like, but I want to segue to that and talk about team, right? So we parted ways with Everest or the, the, world, the world parted ways with Everest back nine, nine years ago. And the team at Everest, outside of a few senior executives, is pretty much pretty much intact, right? Mm-hmm. How important as you build out an asset management business is that is that cohesion uh, between the team and having the same guys, right? I'm sure that you're sick of James's jokes after hearing them, probably the <laughs> same three for 20 plus years. But how important is to have that that synergy with a team that, you know, pretty much, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of you guys have been together for two decades. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty scary. Almost as scary as you and me talking to each other <laughs> for 25 years. I mean, look, the asset management business is, it's people process performance, right? So. You can't start, you got to start with the people. And we're huge believers in the team, investing in the team, whether it be on on what we're doing in terms of team's activities, but it might be even wellness, investing in things like stress reduction or mindfulness training or working with a trading coach, or even having independent research like your firm, Paul, that we pay for independent research out of our own pockets. We don't have to do that, but that's all to benefit the team and working with the team. As you mentioned, we all have different personalities. We have different styles. James's style might be slightly different than mine, but I think we come in together and we have Chem on the economic side who we argue that it's nice to hear from the consultants once in a while, but he does have very strong input in terms of what the fundamentals are and what the mark, what the data is saying and how that plays into it. And I think the fact too, you know, we like to work with each other. I mean, you like to work with people you like to work with and we work a lot. It's not... Nine to four or nine thirty to four four. I mean, it's twenty four seven. Typically, it's Saudis trading over the weekend. Oftentimes, you have news over the weekend that could impact markets. So it's really you. You have to really like the people that you work for, and I think that's key. We've tried to create a culture for very senior analysts who might not be running a book, but have the ability to work very very closely with me and in, in changing the book and 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 influencing the portfolio. I think that's super key as well. You want to empower people. You want to you know have people grow into new roles. It's super key. But yeah, thanks for mentioning that we do have a strong team and. And the experience as well. I mean, I think if you come into emerging markets right now today, I mean, you've never seen a commodity cycle. You've never seen Latin America do going through the boom period. You've just seen the bust period. So we think that that, that experience really gives us an edge. You've got a couple of slides. Why don't you share those now? And I'm sure you'll talk about the team. And I want to talk about process, particularly in the context of what we've just talked about in terms of different sort of PE style mentalities and the like. So walk us, walk us through the firm. And for those who are not aware of, of who you are or the detail of who you are. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Paul. So, I mean, I'm not going to go into too much detail in the process, but just at a very high level, as we discussed from the beginning, we believe that macro is important. Top-down matters, macro matters. I think it's very, very hard to be a stock picker, bottom-up stock picker in emerging markets because you have currency risk, you have convertibility risk, you have geopolitical risk. So we've incorporated that with our macroeconomics team led, led by Chem Rakarek. He's been with us for a long time. And he's also has other resources. Felipe Labay has a very strong economist working with him. We're growth, but we're growth, growth at a reasonable price. We try to identify growth themes. So not every stock fits into the portfolio, but 85, 90% of the stocks do. Themes could be very broad, like theme, uh, technology disruption, but they could be very narrow, like uh, copper. At the end of the day, though, we are bottom-up stock pickers. Basically, 70% of the attribution over time is from stock selection. So it's taking that top-down macro, taking the thematic and finding the best idea. We've incorporated ESG since day one, going back over ten, over nine years ago, looking at ESG factors. We have our own in-house model. We have a e- head of ESG. We actually believe that ESG is just a part of due diligence, understanding companies, understanding the risk, 
that's how we try to look at it. We do engage with our management teams. We have many examples of that. On average, the portfolio has 50 to 70 positions. Right now, we're around 62, 63. As Paul mentioned, we do have a diverse team. I'm in Miami with part of the team. We've been in Miami for quite some time. We're also in Singapore. We've been in Singapore since 2004 with Everest. You can see the people highlighted in, in gray. And then James, my partner, heads up London. And so that's great. The head of the, the uh, headquarters for RWC located in London. So we have, we have great coverage. We're close to emerging markets, but we're not in them. Although I would argue sometimes Miami is an emerging market. We do have an in interesting resource with Rice Hadley Gates. This goes back over a decade while at Everest. Condoleezza Rice started this firm. We have calls with these individuals every, every four to six weeks. The interesting thing about these individuals are that they're not politicians. They're historians. They're policymakers. They've been on the other side of, of Xi or Putin. Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense under Bush Obama. He was the youngest head of the CIA ever. So tremendous depth of knowledge, depth of resources, and they continue to talk to people. We, you know, They're very, very engaged. They're obviously not picking stocks or picking themes, but they very much have a view on US-China, Saudi, the Saudi-UAE relationship right now, which I think is somewhat under question, Russia, Turkey. So things like that, that obviously can be, can be really key in terms of developing and, and structuring the portfolio. The thematic overview that I have, I mean, Basically, we have the old world and the new world. So the new world being tech disruption, all the technology moving into everything that we do, automobiles, as we come out of COVID, looking at health and fitness, and obviously the new media, leisure and gaming. In the middle, you have financial inclusion, which we can talk about it later, Paul, but one of the big drivers I see for emerging markets over the next, for an extended period of time, maybe five to seven years, are the low, very low, unprecedented interest rates. And so we had a conference last week with Citi where our whole team was meeting with banks all over the world. And in every market, whether it be Burdesco in Brazil, HDFC in India, Sparebank, these companies are lending to consumers car loans, mortgages in the single digits. This didn't exist. You know, It didn't exist five years ago. And so we are potentially at the beginning of a credit cycle, which we haven't seen in a long time throughout emerging markets. And then the old world, we have infrastructure, EM travel, uh, and materials. So that's, that's kind of how the portfolio is positioned. As I mentioned, we do have our own ESG scoring system. This has been in place. When a company scores poorly, we have the analyst has to basically prove that or support evidence that the company is looking to address these issues. Um, and, and as I mentioned, we do engage with our with our management teams. Marina heads up that engagement, and we've been very successful there. This is one of the uh, recent successes we've had, Kaz Minerals. It's a copper company based in Kazakhstan, but is listed in London. So developed market listing, developed mar market board, supposedly independent directors, which agreed to a very, very undervalued price by the controlling shareholders. We fought it. We went to the press. We went to the company, went to the, to the management, went to the board, the independent directors, talked to ISS. It resulted in basically two increases, which was much greater value for, for all minority shareholders. We still think that the controlling shareholders got a good price, but we ended up in a, in a pretty good result. We're not activists, though, but we will engage with our managements. Just in terms of portfolio construction, we basically funnel it down, looking at a universe of about 2,300 stocks. Each analyst, based on region and then sector, would have 150 stocks that they're basically, they have to narrow that down to 10 stocks on their buy list. That gives me a bench of 125 to 175 names. And as I mentioned, I have about 60, 62 names in the portfolio now. Our active share is high. You can see that some of the top 10, they might be in the index, but they're very low weighting. Longi Green Energy, which is the number one uh, largest solar manufacturer in the world, 10 basis points in the index. We have a 3.7% position. First Quantum, the second largest pure play in, or one of the larger pure plays in terms of copper in the market today, listed in Canada with assets in Zambia and, and Panama, no, obviously, representation in the index. So our active share is high. You can see the top 10 end up being about 35% of the portfolio or so. 
You can see that also as a growth manager, we have companies like Tencent or TSMC, which we think are long-term winners, but we also have companies like SQM, Sochimich, which is the largest lithium producer in the world based in Chile. As I mentioned, the performance has been strong since inception. We are volatile though. Our tracking error has been high. It's anywhere from 6 to 7%, but we believe that over time we compound at a very high rate. And we think that the last 10 years or so have not been strong for emerging markets. And we think at some point we could be due for a strong period of, of outperformance, in which case that 12% hopefully would be quite a bit higher. We do have upside price targets to our portfolio. And at this point, we have about 46% upside to our, our portfolio. So actually, let me pause there, Paul, for a minute, if you have any questions on kind of the team and the process. Otherwise, we can start to move into China. John, talk a little bit about the... Um... I, I want to look at, there's a lot of climate in that, in the portfolio, right? And I, I can ask this question at any stage. So can you give us a, a summary of, of the impact, positive and negative, of the energy transition? And you and I were talking before we started the event, talking about this, there is no, there is no magic wand here. There is no just flick, you cannot flick the switch. And for someone who is, a, as you know, a card-carrying disinflationist like I am, Jeez, it's hard to be. It's hard to keep that uh, conviction when I look about look at the energy transition, the underinvestment in everything from aluminum to copper to, and certainly to oil and even even coal is. It's it's problematic to keep a disinflationary framework with the amount of demand that's going to be that's going to come in copper and aluminum are just but two examples. Can you talk a little bit about the impact on EM, both positive and negative, of the energy transition? Yeah. So I think. When we think about emerging markets overall, big picture, why we are positive, and we're not always positive. I mean, in 12 and 13 and 14, we were actually pretty negative. We were positioned negatively or, or conservatively. We, it resulted in strong performance, but 12, 13 were flat years. 14, 13, 14 were flat years. 15 was a, a difficult year. But I do see we have to get beyond kind of where we are in, in US monetary policy and, and the inflation story, I think, in the next year or so might be a year and a half. But beyond that, there are three incredibly strong drivers that support emerging markets and why somebody would want to invest in emerging markets. Rates, I mentioned, so the consumer credit story, because even if US policy tightens somewhat, my view is that local rates in emerging markets will stay low for an extended period of time. We will have, we have a, a huge savings glut, and that will continue to keep those rates very, very low. EM currencies are cheap, and basically the capital accounts or the current accounts are in balance. And so they don't need external capital, which means that rates will stay low. The second one is technology disruption. And I'll get to your point in a minute, but it's important. Techno technology disruption, we're seeing that, and we're going to see that. We've, we're in the middle of that in the US, and I think that's a global phenomenon. And basically, in the 90s, when I was talking to Paul, I was looking at companies like Petrobras, and we were looking at fixed-line companies, literally. Cell and mobile was such a small part, we you almost didn't even focus that much on it. And now we're looking at applications that will customers in rural India actually ever go into a bank or will they just send money via this or via geo or whatever. And so that's the other driver. But the third driver that I think is completely, totally misunderstood, and even for developed markets, is, is the investment in climate change. And we call it the green wave. You can call it whatever you want. But there is coming out of COVID, we have now the two largest economies in the world, 100% focused on carbon emissions, zero, zero climate change, zero climate emissions overall. China somewhat embraced it going in, I would say half-heartedly, but they came out of, I think, COVID 100% focused on clean energy. You see that in EV, you see that in basically focusing on investing in solar, renewables. And it's not just also, it's not just making China beautiful, which she has talked about, but it's also not being reliant on the Middle East to sell you 12 million or you know, 13 million barrels of oil every day. They don't want that. They want to be energy independent. And one way they can do that is through nuclear, which is why we see uranium stocks doing well, but also in solar renewables and also in electric vehicles and changing the, the grid. We, we also had the the grid plan come out for the next five years, which, which looks pretty strong in our mind. It's about $70 billion a year of spending. The other one is the US, obviously. I mean, Trump, I don't even think he still acknowledges climate change, but Biden 
completely embraces it. And so, and we have really media, if you look at CNN, CNN's mission before the US election was to get Trump out of office. Now their mission is to basically create, address climate change. That will be the narrative that we see for however long it takes. The amount of money needed is tremendous. And the amount of money that will be spent is going to be tremendous. So when you look at copper at 425, or you look at first quantum trading at seven seven times earnings, not EBITDA, but earnings, the markets aren't pricing this in. And so we could see a world where commodities are multiples higher of where we are now. We could also see a world that wakes up to say, hey, maybe this is a growth opportunity to look at Chile, Peru, or maybe revisit what's going on in the Middle East or Africa, which were markets that people cared about. Now everybody cares about, or until recently, internet stocks in China or internet stocks or tech stocks overall or consumer stocks in India. I think it's going to be a huge, huge opportunity. It's not going to happen at one time, Paul. The, it's going to be uneven. We're going to have fits and starts. We, it will continue to have supply chain issues as, as a result of it. In commodities, I mean, you can't flip a switch and just produce 10% more copper a year tomorrow. It takes, at a minimum, probably seven to eight years and will likely cost anywhere from five to more like $10 billion. That's just for one kind of average mine that's producing you know, 300 million tons or something like that, 300,000 tons. So that is one issue in terms of the supply chain that we're going to see. We see it in aluminum right now. And as you basically see China pivot away from being an industrial export-driven model to being more of a consumer, we're not going to have as much aluminum coming on the market because they don't want to basically take take energy, create solid energy, and sell it into the US or sell it into to Vietnam. Uh, they don't want to do that with steel. Everything's kind of up in the air. And I think for emerging markets, the big misunderstanding is who is the marginal benefit of commodity strength? And it's clearly EM. It has to be. Latin America, 50% of their exports are commodity-based. So if copper does well, and we've seen it when Lula came into office, and, and it's ironic because Lula might be back in office next year, and that's a whole nother discussion. But when Lula was in office, basically, he did absolutely nothing. The bond market crashed on the fears of him coming in. We, I remember at Everest, we, we loaded up the boat and we knew that when he'd come in, he wouldn't say anything. I mean, because he did that when we, when we had private meetings with him and he did nothing. Commodities are strong. Iron ore was strong. Soft commodities were strong. And Brazil did extremely well. At that time, companies like Vale were must-own stocks. They ended up trading. They were up tremendously, ended up trading at eight, nine times EV EBITDA. So I think people don't have a, an imagination for that, but we surely do. And we, we think at some point that could happen. Timing-wise, who knows? But I think if you're not focused on the supply chain that will bring us to address climate change, then you're going to miss the boat. And it's not going to be Alibaba. I'm sorry. I mean, it's not going to be. I mean, Tencent could still do well. TSMC could do, still do well because of other reasons, but it's probably not going to be the companies that got us to where we are right now. Right. So, John, I think this question I'm about to ask is impossible to answer, but I think it is the number one macro uh, number one macro question for the next, from a central bank standpoint, for the next five years. And that question is, if you look at the ECB that has incorporated climate into its overall policy stance, I think it's pretty clear that the, that the Fed is, over the next couple of years, could go in that same direction, right? Maybe not as formally as the ECB, but it will certainly take it into account. And the question which I think is vital is, are central banks, predominantly the ECB and the Fed, going to be more flexible with climate-induced inflation because it is part of the established mandate than other forms of inflation. This is this is not this is not Trichet's ECB anymore where they where they they hiked where he hiked rates into into a massive downturn and into the financial crisis. Right. This is an ECB that is looking to be the ultimate underpinning of the global climate agenda. Right. So are they and and is the ECB and the Fed going to allow inflation to run hot, hotter than potentially it is today, if that inflation is driven by climate-related issues? The short answer is yes. And what it ends up being is <laughs> the transitory period that we're going through is it's not... Not, trans quarters, not transitory. It's not quarters, but it's maybe years. And so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that 
I was just struck the other day, yesterday, Glencore, a company probably everybody would know about. I mean, you know, we could get into details, but I mean, this is a company that has been in the most difficult markets on earth in the most difficult markets. So we're talking about DRC. We're talking about mining throughout Africa. We're talking about high, incredibly risky, risky areas with risky governments and doing maybe questionable business practices. I would, I think it's even documented because they've been fined. They sold a 30-year bond at 3.6% yesterday. Even away from green bonds or, or these directed policy of the ECB or, or whatever, as long as we create an environment where some of these businesses have the ability to finance, I mean, they're looking at coal assets right now. Tech, for example, it's on the tape. Tech is a Canadian company selling coal assets, and they're probably going to sell them at, I don't know, pick a number, four, five, six times EV EBITDA probably huge cash flow. They might be buying an asset that's generating an, an unlevered return of 20%, of let's say just 15 to 20%. So there's a massive arbitrage for anybody who wants to kind of focus on that. So I, I think that's that's one thing that, that's huge. But I would agree. The other thing that we saw out of Ecuador recently was the IADB partnering with Ecuador to do a social bond. And this is an interesting structure because it's through an SPV into Europe where basically part of it's 100% back, 50% is backed by the IADB, part of it's Ecuadorian risk. Ecuador has defaulted almost, I don't know, I'm going to pick a number, 10 times in the past 50 years. I mean, it's a perennial defaulter. So this is a very high-risk country. And the, these bonds basically came to the market in the low single digits. The proceeds of this bond goes to focus investing in housing and urban development. So that's, again, just a small example of governments, IADB, and we know World Bank is getting more money. They're all getting more money. So this is just the start, I think, of more and more policy lending that's directed by, you could say the ECB, you could say in effect the Fed, because as long as the Fed keeps low rates, they're doing it the same thing. It's a subsidy. And then also the agency lending. I think you're going to see more and more of the agency lending. And the agency lending too is also going to be driven geopolitically, which we can talk about China for a long time, but China has been lending. You look at Belt and Road lending strategically, the US has kind of missed the boat on that. But I think you're going to see much more lending that's directed through US agencies based on geopolitical national risk. Super interesting fact. I mean, this company, First Quantum, they have 18 or 19% shareholder called Jingxing Copper. It's a Chinese company. They have a standstill agreement and a put, a put provision, so they can't take it over without certain measures happening. It's not a pure SOE, but it is very closely tied to the government. So, and then SQM also has local lithium producer who's a shareholder. I think it's, I'm not sure exactly, but it's, it's, it's north of 20%. But again, they have a standstill agreement. So the Chinese are buying these assets strategically because they see where the world is going. The Chinese, they have five-year, multiple five-year plans. They see where the world in terms of, if we want to go to address climate change, go to zero emissions, what do we need? We need more copper. We need more lithium. We need to have the best battery producers. And that's why they shut out the Koreans, basically shutting out LG Chem a while ago and saying, okay, the 50 domestic producers, here, go build the best batteries that you can so we can compete. And so not only are we in a world that's focused on investing on this because of climate change, but it's also ends up being somewhat of a arms race in terms of China to get to that, to that period where we want to be in terms of not relying on energy. I think the other side of that, Paul, is to look at the Middle East. And we had a call now going back a couple of months ago with the CFO of Aramco. He spent most of the call talking about investing in hydrogen, renewables, diversifying away from energy. Aramco has generates 250 billion of EBITDA in a year. And that's where they're directing their investment. So they they basically produce oil at a couple bucks, two or three dollars. I mean, it's super, super cheap and traded, sell into the market at 70, 75 dollars. So they're taking and they're they're basically around OPEC. The reason why Saudis, UAE stepped away from Saudis in terms of the last deal, because UAE wanted a higher um, allocation in terms of their production, is because they're basically in a fight to diversify away from hydrocarbons. 
they want more and more capital so they can invest in solar, they can invest in hydrogen, hydrogen, maybe nuclear. And um, they see a day where, you know, their demand for traditional hydrocarbon is, is much, much lower. So what does that mean for Saudi banks? What does it mean for Saudi businesses? What does it mean for a renewable company that's selling into Saudi? What does it mean for Longji, who sells maybe solar into Saudi? And so I think it's tremendous opportunity, super, super exciting. I'm super glad that you and, and your focus is now or continues to accelerate on renewables and on this investment wave that, again, could be for an extended period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think that the climate agenda, mate, is going to be, uh, put it this way, it'll, it, it will still be going well and truly after I've, I've bitten the dust. But I know uh, just in, uh, and obviously we could run over a little bit of time. The great thing about this being my, my thing, I can take it a few minutes longer. But I know you've got some more thoughts on China. Why don't we dive a little bit deeper into, into that? Yeah, let's go there. Yeah, let's, I mean, just backing up on our, how we've been positioned in China. I mean, when I woke up and the day that, I forget, it was November something, 11th or 12th, or when the Chinese canceled Ant Financial after the allocations, we were given a $35 million allocation and the deal was canceled that morning. That was a wake-up call. And that was a wake-up call that the wave of regulation is going to be massive, that the Chinese are very much focused on this, and that Ant Financial was a deal that Paul and I have been waiting for for probably three years, maybe two or three years, maybe even longer. And if you were to look at the deal, and we'd spent a lot of time on it, it was a phenomenal business. You could argue it would, would have been worth anywhere from 350 to $400 billion. And now we would question what it's worth. I think any nobody really has a view. And so at that point, we did have exposure to Alibaba. We sold it down completely. We did take down the rest of our e-commerce and internet-related names and went to a pretty material underweight in China of about 10%, 9.5%. And we've been underweight. We're still underweight, but we've kind of closed that gap with bringing up names like Tencent in the past six weeks. But the point of this chart really, and, and Paul has talked about it, and Paul knows China probably much better than me, this is not the first wave of, of regulation in China. And they typically do this. And if it, you can see this is the equity market, but if we had industrial production or GDP it would look pretty similar. They do it at times when the economy's been strong. They're coming out of a strong employment system situation. There's not a lot of social issues in terms of labor or anything like that. And that's exactly what happened before. And so I think, unfortunately, they did this at a time when we were coming out of a massive recovery coming out of COVID. It was a huge bull market. There was enormous amount of speculation and deals and in IPOs. And and obviously, everybody loved China. Now, kind of fast forward to where we are now, I would say not a lot of people love China right now, and everybody's questioning it. And I, the sentiment probably is going to get worse. As you can see, it got worse in, after 15 when the uh, A share market was suspended for a period of time. Obviously, it took a period of, period of time for that to work out. Also, after kind of the Trump-Chi trade war, also other regulatory issues going on, that took some time. So I would argue that China, although I think we probably could make money in China going forward, we're probably going to be making more money outside of China and other areas. But that's not to say that we don't care about what's going on in China, because what is going on in China is going to impact our CAS-based uranium company or first quantum and copper, because it's going to impact those, those other businesses. And so I, I think we're probably, we would argue that we're probably 75% the way through the regulation, maybe even more. Maybe, maybe close to completed. Next year, as Paul has talked about in his various series, is a very important year for the Communist Party. It's a very important year for Xi. You have the Beijing Olympics, and then you have a, a number of meetings through the party and party structure that are, that are really very important, setting the stage for, for the next cycle. And so it kind of fits the narrative that you want to get the regulatory changes in now before next year. That said, the equity market probably doesn't care about that. And you'll probably continue to see high volatility within equities. We think the risk reward here is actually pretty good on some names. As I mentioned, some of the tech giants like Tencent make, uh, kind of make sense in terms of risk-adjusted reward going out over the next six to 12 months. Names like Baidu, which I know that Paul has mentioned before, we think that that's pretty interesting in terms of artificial intelligence. So 
we're picking our spots, but just to say China's interesting here, I think that's that's kind of a difficult one. Just yeah. sorry to interrupt for a second, John. I think it's a, you make a very good point here. And there is a lot of blanket approaches saying that China is uninvestable. And you've alluded through this, through the conversation. If we take this, not just through regulation, but through this notion of common prosperity, you don't want to be long companies that do cat videos, right? You don't want to be long gaming companies right now when they've, you know, when the party has told you that, they don't want their kids playing video games, right? But you can be long quality growth and you can be long the factors that deal with common prosperity, like, like issues related with climate, like things like social housing and hospitals and this sort of stuff as they, as they break down the hoku system and deal with migrant workers and, and treat them fairly. Again, this notion that China is uninvestable is I think these blanket approaches just show how ignorant certain investors can be because do I want to invest in Billy Billy right now? No way. But I think that if you look at Longy and these sort of companies, world-class climate companies, world-class solar companies, these sort of things, they are going to be underpinned by a wave of support from Beijing. No, I think that's exactly right. We had our Thursday research meeting, which is a standing meeting, Colin Lang, who you know very well, who heads up our China research. We talked about the political structure of China this morning and and kind of going back decades ago and, and where she is. And, and we can get into detail about that. And that's a whole nother discussion. But the, you're exactly right. I mean, this is an incredibly deep market. The A-share market, if anybody doesn't trade the A-share market, they would be blown away by the liquidity. And you have eight to, billion, eight to 10 billion market cap stocks that literally trade 200 to $300 million a day. The liquidity is incredibly, incredibly deep. The companies, the skew of management in terms of from incredibly poor to you know great management teams, the businesses. So we view it as completely opportunistic. And if you look at the differentiation, I mean, China has not done well. If you look at ADRs, they've been crushed this year. Eight shares also, you've had a big derating, but the Shanghai comp, the A share market is, it's down a little bit, but it's kind of flattish. I mean, the, the chart overall looks pretty constructive. So the local market and local liquidity looks pretty good. As we've talked about, Paul, I mean, in our history, I mean, Going back, I mean, periods where during this period, it was like, oh, we're going to see a 20, 30%. It, it was pretty common knowledge that we'd see like a 35% devaluation in the renminbi, right? I mean, that was kind of that was kind of consensus. So, and now we're seeing why kind of strengthen. I mean, it's been one of the stronger currencies in the world. So is China uninvestable? Is China about to blow up or implode with having, one, their stock market being relatively stable and two, the currency being very, very stable? We view it as, yeah, there's going to be opportunities. You want to know the direction of regulation. And, and at some point, I mean, for example, Meituan, which, which we are constructive on and we do think is a technology disruptor, they came to an agreement with the government. They're working with the government on labor issues on on basically formalizing labor on pension issues on working hours but those are all things that developed markets have in place i mean everything that the chinese have done are things that we have actually here we have our education system is run by either the state or by nonprofits the the, the for profit education system in the us is tiny and so what china did is they basically are are putting the re- regulation in pre- in place which unfortunately are hurting some businesses, but the longer term impact towards that common prosperity and the common good is probably much more positive and also plays into the favor of strengthening the government and strengthening Xi. Well, so John, I think that, that you make a, bring up a very good point. So back in 2010, President Obama banned you know, for-profit private student loans. Radical policy around education is not unusual, not the domain purely of the Chinese. And you can make an argument that China is doing, in many cases, what the rest of the world wished it could do. I tell you what, I would, I, I, I know, I think there are hundreds of millions of parents around the world who'd love to turn around and say to their kids, "By the way, kids, President Biden has told you you can only play Roblox for three hours a week." Right? It's you know, these are a lot of a lot of policies, be them be them about private education and getting the cost of, of tuition down and or about video games or Meituan, for example, being told that it had to pay its drivers minimum wage. Well, that's exactly what California did to Uber. These are regulations which, in isolation, A, have been tried in the West or B, the West would love to try but politically may not have the will to do so. Yeah, and I think if you look at the issues around income disparity and it's, it's pretty well documented, I mean, 
housing, for example, I mean, housing is going to have a difficult time, I think, in, in, in China for some time. I mean, you're capping, you're, you're, you're restricting secondary purchases, you're slowing down speculation, you're, you're capping prices in certain areas, but that might sound good on paper, but in terms of market dynamics, who's going to want to buy a house if they think the price is going to come down, if they think that the, you have things like Evergrande happening? So I think in terms of, of policy, you look here, what we've seen before, and we're probably at the beginning of a policy easing cycle, which eventually, you know, it, it probably, again, we probably could be in a period of, you know, continued high volatility, maybe some weakness, but at some point you should have basically, you know, that policy have an impact in terms of economic growth. And here we just show that based on government, you know, regulation and where they've done, some of the sectors come back after the regulation, as, we, as we've seen here, but some of them don't. Clearly, education is not coming back. Shadow lending and, and things like that, overseas investing in certain areas years ago really have not come back. So I think we have to think about what our view is on the longer term themes. And just like we're taking it in terms of the global approach and sharing that information. But there are, there are, I mean, if you look at just the opportunity in electric vehicles and China's leading the charge in electric vehicles, it's enormous. I'm not saying that NEO is interesting right here and, and or Li Auto or, 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 the other companies throughout the supply chain, is lithium interesting when we can buy very, very cheaply valued commodity producers? Yes. Maybe at some point we owned NEO last year. It did extremely well, much exceeded our price target. We sold it. But maybe at some point that makes sense to come back into to a name like NEO. I have a hard time seeing the Chinese let Tesla completely dominate the EV market. I mean, that's not very Chinese. It could be wrong. So you'd think there would there would be developing a, a kind of a local long-term player. But these are some of the themes that we talked about and that, that you mentioned. And hotels, for example. I mean, Haotsu, basically this company has market share of 3%. The market is completely, completely fragmented. And the ability for them to basically consolidate, you look at where Chinese chains are right now, where US chains, I mean, it's a huge, huge opportunity day rates are moving up. COVID recoveries, that would be a good example. Local airlines doing really well. So yeah, I think we just kind of try to take an opportunistic approach to, 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 the, to the backdrop. Right. So John, I think one of the things I, and it's a question we got from, from the audience here, I think a theme that when you think about China is, is that market structures may make investing in China difficult, but it's not hard to invest in Chinese proxies right, be them copper proxies, lithium proxies, whatever. A question for the audience about VIE structure, which goes back to the, to the risk of investing in underlying assets, be them, and these are obviously listing in ADRs. The VIE structure, which for those who are not aware, is this very quirky, funky, broadly illegal structure that has allowed tech companies from China to raise hundreds of billions of dollars over the last 20 years. Could we just wake up and see that structure go away and take that a step further? Talk about the prospect of delisting from US exchanges and the consequences of that? The regulators said, as you probably know, and you've probably written about a couple, now about six weeks ago, that the structure will remain in place and that they still honor the structure. But we've heard, I mean, <laughs> we've heard that from regulators and then wake up the next day. So we don't own any ADRs that don't have H share due listing. So we kind of just made that decision because I frankly don't, I don't think it's going to go away, but would I own an ADR that just has the VIE structure? No. Hong Kong listing actually, believe it or not, is pretty difficult. It's much, you need to show certain things. So not all companies that, the reason why ADRs are so prevalent is because some companies that are not profitable or have you know, certain issues or certain metrics, so they don't have the, the time that the Hong Kong exchange needs, they can't list in Hong Kong. And so that's part of the issue. But I would expect, and after Didi, and people can say what they want about Didi, but I, my, the story on Didi was basically, I think that they were told to you know, list in Hong Kong and they didn't, and they get slapped around and they will continue to. And so I see pure ADR Chinese listing, I don't see that being a, a growth area. And I see companies that have ADRs thinking and trying as quickly as possible to get an H share listing. So that's kind of how I see it. If you look at the H share market, the, the Hong Kong listed Chinese companies, it's very common for them to trade at a big discount to the A share market. And so I think we, we continue to have probably ADRs, H shares trading at discounts. If they're phenomenal businesses and have an H share listing, could they trade at a higher multiple? Sure. 
you have to really convince convince international crossover money to be excited about it. Chinese investors are on the ground. They see the growth. I mean, you, you see this as much as we like to beat up on China and, and the world does. I mean, it's been a phenomenal, it's a, a phenomenal story in itself in terms of development, but it's a phenomenal technology story. I mean, the adoption, how quickly China adopts technology is amazing. I mean, look at EVs now. I mean, the 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 look at the EV consumption on a monthly basis. It's off the charts. I mean, the consumer surveys, I mean. 90% of the consumers that are buying a car right now are thinking about buying an EV in China. Now, what does that say? China is the largest car market in the world with 20, 20 million, 22 million, 23 million a year. So the world is going there. This isn't made up artificial stuff. So, But when we think about that technology push, we think it's, it's really interesting. Right. Unfortunately, right, I could do this forever, but we're running out of time. But I want to finish with sort of the big, a big picture question for you. China as, as an emerging market, I think we can, is there, and I, I think we can all agree that it probably doesn't belong there. If we can have a world which was DM, EM and China, that that's probably the perfect way to allocate, allocate capital. Is there any justification for having China and EM indices? Or does that just naturally point to the deficiency of passive investing in, in EM when China doesn't really belong there? It's a great question, Paul, and it's kind of ironic because we started talking early on in the conversation about the Asian financial crisis, which obviously was all around currencies. And prior to that, basically, currencies were pegged, so they were artificially managed. And when I think about, and we could talk about Korea and Taiwan in the same respect, but at the end of the day, until the renminbi is full float, floating, freely floating currency, where it's not manipulated, it's not, if Jack Ma wants to take $5 billion out of China and put it in New York and do whatever he, he doesn't have to go through and get all the blessings or whatever. I think it should be considered an emerging market because I think it has emerging market uh, risk, which is tied around the currency. And, and that's really why Korea and Taiwan have the same issue. They have non-deliverable forward currency markets. They also kind of want to keep that status because they have captive investors. But that's kind of how I think about it. And the biggest risk for me longer term in thinking about China is that is how do they, how do you go from quasi-controlled economy to really a free-floating economy where money can go in and out? Do they actually ever want that? I'd I mean, argue they don't want that, right? So maybe that's the case, and maybe it just it's it stays where it is. I mean, the the indices have their objectives, and and they want to create products and whatnot. But I think as an investor, as a just a kind of total return point of view, that's what I would be thinking about. Got it. So mate, how should people get in touch with you? Should we give everyone James's home phone number? We should give them yes, James's home yeah. phone number so they can so James can deal with the calls. How should people get in touch with you and, and the like, be it be it about you know just about I know you love talking about markets all the time or on a more professional basis. How should people get a hold of you? Yeah, that's a good question, Paul. Why don't maybe if you could circulate something afterwards yeah. to some of our team in, in Miami and London, I'm not exactly sure where people are calling in from, but the other thing to note, and Paul knows we do calls very frequently with with a big part of the team is, I mean, we're very user-friendly. So if you want to get on with our economist, Chem, he's wonderful. Colin's wonderful. James will talk your ear off about some Zambian company that you don't care about, but <laughs> it's interesting nonetheless. And so we have a very deep team. We do, I think, a tremendous amount of in-depth research and that resource and our reading, writing research, as Paul does as well, just the written uh, research that we send around is is I think really informative. So, thank Got you very it. much, Paul. Super. Thank you, mate. Well, I'm looking forward. To, I'm as you know, I, I'm been on planes for a while, but I'm looking forward to getting on a plane and coming down and having dinner with all you guys soon. And mate, thank you very much for your time, John. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Appreciate it, mate. Bye bye.